God does see the heart. God wants the heart. And really, if we could summarize the problems that are laid bare for us to see in the book of Malachi, the real issue was a heart issue. So turn to Malachi chapter 3, and we are continuing just going paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, through this last book of the Old Testament, letting God direct our study and direct our, uh, the topics that we're going to speak about tonight, and he's done so this evening, and, and I trust him to, to meet needs and speak to hearts tonight, uh, even in areas that I don't necessarily know about or not plainly evident, uh, but we trust the Lord and his word. But the context here in the book of Malachi is, of course, being the final book of the Bible, the last 100 years, the events that have taken place, God has providentially brought his people back from captivity, the nation of Israel. He had warned them over and over again by the prophets about their sin and the the direction they were heading. And, of course, they were taken into specifically the nation of Judah, the southern tribes. They were taken into captivity, into the nation of Babylon, which would become the the kingdom of Persia as well. But then God in his providence, and it's really an amazing thing, God would raise up some kings who, and, and, and not... Uh, not Israelite kings, but uh, kings of this world, Persian kings, who would uh, have a desire in their heart, placed there by God himself, to send his people back and to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. And so all that has been done by this point. There's a, there's a new temple. The walls have been repaired. The people are back in the land. But as we've seen, things are definitely not what they should be. The, the freshness, the newness, the excitement of a restored fellowship with God, that was years in the rearview mirror. And things have progressed quite a bit since then. And as we've seen, the relationship between God and His people had grown cold, calloused, dead, um, and, and throw, sprinkle a little attitude problem on top to make the whole thing complete. Not a good situation. And so God sent his messenger. The name Malachi just simply means God's messenger. So God sends his messenger Malachi to expose some of these issues. To call his people back to himself. Unfortunately, we know that because of their attitude and their response to God's message... It would be God's final word to his people for the next 400 years. It would be the final revelation. God would would in essence say, okay, I see that your mind is made up. You're going to continue in your ways, the direction that you're going. And so I I will fulfill your wishes and I will just simply leave you alone. I'll leave you to your dead religion. I'll leave you to all the things that you're... That, uh, um, and we've seen some of those things. I'll leave you to all those things. That's obviously what you want. And I'm going to leave you alone. And we've talked about as, we, as we've gone through this series, as, the, the, as a believer, the thing that ought to strike fear in our hearts would be that God would just leave us alone. That God would just say, I see you're happy. I see you're you know, sort of fulfilled, uh, pursuing after what you want. And so it's obvious you don't want to listen. So I'm going to let you have whatever it is you, you're, you want. I'll leave you alone. If our heart is not right with God, we'll say, good, I get what I want. But if we're tender to God, we realize we understand how much we are in need of God's grace right. and God's help. And when God leaves us alone, we're cut off from his help. We're cut off from his grace, how we need that. And so we can look into this book of Malachi and, and see some, um, some, some sin, some, some signs along the way that we should look for, we ought to look for in our own hearts and say, I, I want to be careful so that God doesn't leave me alone. So that God doesn't just, just uh, uh, give me what I want, but I'm, that I'm tender to him. And so we've seen how the, the, the people question God's love for them in the first chapter. We we saw how the priests were very sloppy in their offerings to God, despising God by what they were bringing to Him. They were ungrateful for God's provision in their lives. They, They failed in their obligation to bring glory to God. There was rampant divorce 
and adultery. And we saw that in chapter number two as well. And then on top of that, there seemed to be this cocky dissatisfaction with how God was caring for them, how God was you know, not judging all the nations around them who they deemed to be worthy of, of God's judgment. And God wasn't blessing them who they deemed to be worthy of God's blessing. And so oh, issue after issue after issue. And we open tonight in chapter 3 and verse number 7, and yet there's another issue that is raised. And we could summarize the issue by the statement that probably stands out the most in this, in this passage. And that is this, the idea of robbing God. Verse 7, the messenger Malachi with a message from God for his people. He says, even from the days of your fathers, you're gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Dear Heavenly Father, would you help us tonight with these few verses, this passage of Scripture. God, you revealed yourself through your prophet to your people, Israel. And God, you preserved the words of your prophet. You preserved this chapter. You preserved these verses. You preserved them for us today. And I pray that we would see clearly what you're trying to say. And I pray that we'd also see clearly our own hearts. That you would, we would examine ourselves to see if some of the same attitudes and even actions are present in our own lives. Pray that you would examine us, prove our hearts, and even challenge us tonight with our attitude towards you. And may you be honored and glorified. Help me, Lord, to preach the way and with the words that you want me to preach with. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in this passage, we see yet another controversy. See, another conflict between God and his people. And really, there's a couple of things you could kind of walk through, divide the passage up. We see a controversy. We see a curse. We see a command. And then we see a promised consecration if the people would return to obedience. So let's begin by looking at the controversy in verse 7 and verse 8. There's actually two different controversies One is verse 7, one is verse 8. I believe that they're linked together, and one sort of explains the other. But let's take a look at each of them separately. The first controversy in verse 7 involves this. It it involves returning. Returning. And the message there, towards the end, middle to the end of verse 7, return unto me, and I will return unto you. God is calling out to his people to return, and there is actually a controversy about this. And, of course, the people um, are asking, where where are we going to return to? But first, let's look at God's call for return. And another way to think about this that that really helps to to bring it alive is the idea of return is you're, you're going in a specific direction and you return to where you were before. Another word is repentance. So really, God is calling his people to repentance. We see in verse 7 that God says that you have gone away from mine ordinances. You have not kept them. So the idea is that that God had given some ordinances, and an ordinance is a law. It's a statute. It's a a command. God says, here's what I want you to do. And and maybe there in the beginning there was a thought, well, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll obey. But over time, it kind of just falls by the wayside. You've gone away from it. You you, you found some other things to pursue after, 
and obedience in those areas has just sort of languished. And now it's, it's, it's bottom of the totem pole. It's, it's not important. It's kind of off the radar screen, back burner. You don't even think about it anymore. You haven't given, you haven't given proper attention to God's words, to God's commands. Therefore, you have despised what God has commanded you to do. We understand that this is something that we can, rightfully so, uh, criticize God's people for, but we understand how easy it is for us to have clear areas of obedience and we just get distracted with other things. We go away. We don't keep them. And I really like that word, keep, and it means more than just doing the command. It has the idea and and I I'd always think of this playing soccer when the referee would start the match and he would call down, keeper! And the keeper would, the goalie, would raise his, he was the keeper. And it was his job to make sure that no soccer balls got past him into the net. And they wanted to be sure the keeper was ready before they started the match, before they started the game. And that keeper's job was to protect that goal, sacrifice your body, sacrifice your, your head, your legs, your arms, I mean, go crazy, lose your brain in the process, just, just go, I mean, a good goalie's like, they don't have a brain, it's just all about, give me that ball, and they'll destroy anyone uh, in the path of getting that ball. That's a really good goalie, right? That's a really good keeper. But the idea of keeping God's commands is very similar to that, and that's why I, so, I love that illustration, because that is the, the importance of keeping God's commands. It's so important to me, I'm not going to let things slip by. I'm going to be very careful that I'm doing all that God would want me to do. Not because I'm living a a performance-based, works-based religion, but because I want to please God. And that ought to be our attitude. So God says there's been a departure. You've left the things that I've asked you to do. And unfortunately, this departure was not something new. God says you've done this even from the days of your fathers. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. And really the beginning of God's laws and God's dealing with them as a nation. We could think of probably some some illustrations of this, but the one that popped in my mind was on the very on the very uh, uh, day on the very occasion of God giving his law, Moses on the mount on Sinai and God Uh, explaining, here's the things I want from you, and what were the people doing? They're down there with Aaron and the golden calf. They're violating half or not, or maybe even all of the commands that God was giving as he was giving them. Thus it was with God's people over and over again. That's the story of the Old Testament over and over and over again. A departure, a fading away from keeping God's ordinances, God's commands. And so God calls to them. He calls out to them to return. He calls them to repentance. And this is not a nation of Israel issue necessarily. It's, it's, it's a human being issue. We all go astray. We all get lackadaisical. We all wander from the path that we No, we're supposed to to walk in. All we like sheep have gone astray. But I'm thankful there's a God who calls us to return. He calls us to repentance. And you'll note the, the equation in this verse. He's calling them back to obedience to those ordinances, right? He's calling them back to uh, uh, keeping the, the commands, what God told them to do. But notice how he puts that in verse number 7. He just says, return unto the commands, right? No, it says, return unto me. Return unto me. Because obedience is what opens the door of fellowship. You cannot have fellowship apart from obedience. If you're a child of God, if you're a believer, the one thing that you ought to long for the most is I want to walk with God. I want to have fellowship with God. What opens the door for fellowship is obedience. What opens the door for fellowship is active, daily, moment by moment, submission to God. Submitting my plans, submitting my attitudes, submitting my actions, 
Submitting everything about my life to the Lord. God, what do you want? How do you want me to respond? How do you want me to act? What do you want me to do? What's the next step in in my life? That submission is what opens the door for fellowship. But the reverse is then true. That disobedience and a lack of submission, a lack of being active in submitting to God, closes the door of fellowship. It shuts it hard. We wonder, what happened? Why do I feel so distant? Why do I feel so apart from God? Well, disobedience closed that door of fellowship. And now you're, there's, there's a separation there. But isn't it wonderful that God calls for a return? And, and, and on top of that, there is that he puts himself to a commitment. He makes a commitment if they would return. Return unto me and, what's the promise? I will return unto you. Now, I'll remind you that this is after all of, and we've read it, all right, and we, as we studied this book, even after all of their snarkiness, the attitude, the, the petulant spirit that they demonstrated towards God, where us in our human lack of patience and long-suffering, we'd be like, I am done with these people. I'm done. You're going to treat me like that? I'm out of here. But we're not God, and that's probably a good thing. Amen. Definitely a good thing. In spite of all of that, God is offering to, as James talks about, if you draw nigh to me, I will draw nigh to you. The promise, if you return unto me, I will return unto you. There will be a restoration in fellowship. Those, the sins of the past, the departure away from God's commands, those are put behind. There's true forgiveness and there's true restoration in the relationship. What a promise. And then God says, and he, he repeats this a lot. I'm sure you noticed as we read. But God puts his very name on it. He says, return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. I put my very character, who I am, my identity on this promise. That if you seek me, if you return to me, then I will respond. I will return to you. And that is a promise that's repeated over and over and over again in in the Word of God, in the Bible. If we will seek Him, if we will return to Him, He will respond. And He will keep that promise. You have God's Word on His very character and nature that that is exactly what He's going to do. So God gives a commitment if they would return. Unfortunately, verse 8 ends, though, with a contradiction. Contradiction of the need to return. But ye said, wherein shall we return? This is the sixth time. We're actually going to see the sixth and the seventh tonight. The sixth time in this book where God has made a proclamation. God has made a declaration of truth. This is reality. And this is the sixth time where God's people said, we don't agree, God, with your assessment of reality. We think we see see things better than you see them. They denied and questioned everything that God was trying to tell them. I mean, it would be a really good message from this book You know, the title, Don't Question God. You could go through the whole book. But we're prone to question God. And God is there in a very tender sort of way, in a very long-suffering sort of way, a loving way, saying, come back. Repent. Return. I will receive you you if you come back. And their response is very hard and cold. They say, where should we return? We haven't gone anywhere. We haven't changed. We haven't walked away. We haven't departed. You see, their own self-righteousness had had blinded them, and that's that's why self-righteousness is so dangerous. It it really just puts the blinders up. It blinds our, our minds and our eyes to the realities that many times are right in front of our faces. And this self-righteousness is what 
what is really exhibited in the previous verses where they talked about God needs to judge everyone else and God needs to bless us. And because he's not doing that, we don't believe that God's a God of judgment anymore. It's all just based on everything is, everything is perfect, everything's great with me, the problem is with everyone else. Self-righteousness. Pride based on that self-righteousness. They were saying that we're not the problem. Which then clearly insinuates, if we are not the problem, and there is a separation in our relationship with God, then what, pray tell, is the problem? God's the problem. See, I, I would have a relationship with God, but you know what? You know, he's just not dealing with my heart right now, and so, you know, I'm just waiting for him. No, if there is a problem in our relationship with God, the problem is not God's. Amen. See, they were claiming we haven't gone anywhere. We're, we're the ones doing what's right. We're, 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 we're righteous. God's the problem. He's asking us to return. We don't see any problem. Where, what should we repent of? I don't see anything to repent of. And they contradicted God's assessment of their need of repentance. And if we're not careful, we'll do the very same thing. Now, I believe that verse number 8 is a bit of God's answer, even though their question was, was a, a, bit of, a bit of a snarky question, a bit of a, you know, they're not really looking for more information. I think God is answering their question. Like, okay, all right. I was mentioning ordinances in general. I was mentioning laws in general. But since you asked, let me demonstrate one specific ordinance that you have wandered away from. Let me, let me mention one specific place in which you need to repent and you need to return to me. And so God brings up in verse 8 the controversy surrounding robbery. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. There is an accusation here of robbery. The word rob means to plunder or to strip away unlawfully. It's also translated as the word spoil. The idea of beating someone, defeating someone in battle and thereby getting access to all of their stuff. And you get to keep all of that for yourself. Spoil. So spoiling someone. It means to take away by oppression or by violence. It means to take from or deprive, to steal or take privately without the permission of the owner. I really liked um, Noah Webster in this specific instance because he actually references in his 1828 dictionary, in defining this word, he actually references Malachi chapter 3, this exact passage in these verses. And he gives this definition, which I think really helps to illuminate this passage for us. It says, To rob something or someone simply means to withhold that which is due. To hold back that which is good, proper, and right to give. And I think the simplicity of that definition really helps to understand what God is saying. You are withholding from me that which is due to me. You have robbed. Now, he starts with a question here, and I believe his question is meant to defy logic. It's meant to really challenge the mind. And the question is, will a man rob God? Will a man, you know, human beings, mankind, the completely dependent ones, the ones like you and me who are limited by time, and space, and ability, and knowledge. Us, little old man, robbing God, the self-existent one, who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent, who has all capability and ability. It doesn't make any sense. In fact, the question is meant to just shock you. What? A man withholding that which is due to God? 
that doesn't make any sense. I mean, we, we can't even come up with an illustration to help us understand it. Because we, you know, we would think, well, you know, there's this, this little kid and, and he owes something to you know, this big adult. And, and it's like, no, you, you, if you're going to get this, you're going to have to come and get it from me. It's like, <laughs> right. But that's not even a valid illustration. Because the difference between you know, an, an older, full-grown man and, and a little boy is not near as great as the difference between mankind and God. Amen. Will a man rob God? The question is meant to defy logic, but actually what happens is the action is what defies logic. What is the action? Yet ye have robbed me. Ye have robbed me. You as a nation, ye, that the plural, you as a nation, you are involved in the robbery of God. You are stealing from Him that which He owns. You are taking away by oppression and violence that which belongs to the owner, the owner being God. And this, this is something that ought to catch our attention. It, it, ought, it, it ought to shock us a little bit. But just as God's people have that ability, today you and I have that same ability. We'll get to that in just a second. So we see an accusation of robbery. We also see, again, a denial of robbery. The seventh time where the people actively contradict God. It really would have been good at this point to shut the mouth, close the lips, and thoughtfully consider what God said. I'll never forget this. In, in, uh, in our training in Bible Institute, most of, our doctrinal, most of my doctrinal classes were with Brother Hammett. And you learn something pretty quickly with Brother Doug. And that is, if he asked a question... And that question sounded simple. You better shut your mouth and not say anything because it was not a simple question. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'll, I'm, I'm, I apologize if Brother Fryman ever sees this because I greatly respect Brother Josh Fryman. But Brother Josh Fryman would sit and, without exception, the first hand that would be raised immediately to that simple question was Brother Josh's. And he would answer in the simple way, and he walked right into it. And boy, all of a sudden, he's on the hot seat. And he's like, because uh, 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 immediately there would be a follow-up you know, question to that. And, and he's just, you know, Brother Dean, you remember some of that, all right? He's just like uh, searching for words, which is saying something. No offense, Brother Josh. None whatsoever. <laughs> you learned, don't answer any questions. Until you have thoroughly, and I mean thoroughly, thought through what the answer is. And then question that, and then change your answer. I mean, you, I mean really, spend time making sure you know that you have at least a, somewhat of an answer that you can defend when the follow-up comes. I mean, how much more with the God of eternity and the God of heaven who is who is saying, I'm pointing out something. Thoughtfully consider. Our natural tendency as mankind, human beings, is to quickly deflect and deny. To quickly make excuses. To, to just quickly throw, okay, that's why, this is why this doesn't apply to me. This is why I, this doesn't involve me. This, this is an excuse why, you know, I, I'm not accountable for this, but just step back and thoughtfully consider. Our natural tendency is when we get confronted with something, immediately we go on the attack. Whether that is the person who is, you know, confronting us, the, the preacher who's bringing the message and speaking God's word, and all of a sudden in our minds we're just, you know, tearing him down and, and ripping him to shreds because something came a little bit too close to home. If God is speaking, it is best to thoughtfully consider what God is saying before you respond. Or maybe we should say before you react. Think about it. They didn't think about it. They said, wherein? Wherein have we robbed thee? Okay. Well, 
If they're going to deny it, then God's going to lay it out and say, okay, I don't, you know, you're probably not looking for more information, but I'm going to give you some more information. Here, here's how you have robbed me. Here's how you have withheld from me that which is due. Here is the content of the robbery in tithes and offerings. Tithes. What is a tithe? The word tithe is a mathematical term. It's not a descriptive term necessarily. It's just math. It is the tenth. It is 10%. Is, that's what it means. It is the tenth. And in tithes, we see a matter of obedience. Because God commanded His people to tithe. In the Old Testament, there were four specific tithes that, were, that are mentioned there. Uh, one tithe in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 to 33. There was the tithe of the land and the herd. And the tithe of the land was the seed, uh, the fruit, everything that the land brought forth. And then everything from their, their herds that was brought forth, a tenth of that, a tithe of that, was to go to the, the, the tribe of the Levites, those that God said were not allowed to, to own any land or have an inheritance in the promised land. They were to give themselves wholly to service to God. And that tenth, that tithe, was to go to care for those Levites. In Numbers 18, there's another tithe. Numbers 18, 26 to 28. And that was those Levites who were receiving that tithe. They were to tithe on that. There's a, a tenth of a tenth. And they were to, uh, uh, to, to bring that to specifically the priests. And so, yes, the priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And so the Levites were to tithe on what they were given to the priests and, uh, and to kind of take care of their needs. There's a third tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 18. And that was a tithe of the sacrifices brought to God, which the priests were then in offering that to God. They were supposed to eat it and eat it right there in the tabernacle or the temple. And then there was a fourth tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14. This was the fourth year tithe, or every three years. And it was a tithe that was taken for the care of not only just the Levites, but also the poor. And so these were the tithes that were commanded by God to His people. These were the tithes that very early on, from the time of their fathers, they had let them slip. Very early on, they had gone away from these ordinances and not kept them. The tithes. But there was also the offerings. And while the tithe was a matter of obedience, the offering was a matter of willingness. Deuteronomy 18, there was an offering that the people were to present. And the offering was to be of their first fruits. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 4, specifically given to the priests. And, and uh, what's mentioned there is the corn and the wine and the oil and the fleece of the sheep. And they were to give that willingly, that the, the, the first part of that, those crops, the, the first part of the, the wool from the sheep, the, the, the first fruits, they were to give and to give willingly. There's also free will offerings that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Exodus 35 mentions one free will offering. That was the offering for the construction of the tabernacle. That was the offering where they were gathering uh, resources to build the tabernacle. And Moses had to say, enough! All right, we have more than what we need. And actually had to turn away the offering. Uh, that's pretty rare. Um, in Ezra, uh, throughout the book of Ezra, actually a couple different times in Ezra, this is mentioned. But chapter 1, verse 4 is one example. And the, the, the offerings that were given were for the reconstruction of the temple after the return from captivity. And these were the things that God expected His people, the nation of Israel, to be involved in. These were the things that they had let go. These were the things that they had deemed as not important, as non-essentials. And so therefore they left practicing them. And this kind of, in, in a sense, boggles the mind when you understand that as God's people, everything they had was a gift from God. Their status as a nation, was a gift from God. Their land, as a nation, was a gift from God. Not the least of which, now, God gave, them, gave it to them again after allowing them to be taken into captivity and bringing them back. God had given it to them in, 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 in kind of a way He'd given it to them over again. Everything they had was a gift from God. Everything belonged to God. 
And you would think their, their attitude regarding what God asked in return would be a little bit different. But you know, it's just like with you and I. Everything that we have, everything that we own is a gift from God. It's not ours, it's His. And really, what we have is, an, is if we look at it as a tenth and a, a, 90, a 90%, God says, well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to give you 90%, but just let me keep the ten. So really, it's a gift from, from God, but we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So here's the controversy. The controversy was that they needed to repent and return to tithes and offerings. They were guilty of robbing God. And then verse 9, God mentions a curse. And you notice that it's in the present tense. He says, ye are cursed with a curse. This is not something where God's saying, if you continue, then I'm going to do this. No, God says, I've already started doing this. This is already a reality. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. And a curse, sometimes we think of a curse in sort of a hocus-pocus sort of way. And a curse just simply means the resistance of God and the removal of His blessing. An example of a curse might be James 4 and verse 6, where we're told that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That resistance is the curse of God. It's, it's God fighting against you. And, and you know what? That was written to believers. And so we bring a curse upon ourselves when we decide that we're going to be proud. We're going to exalt ourselves. God resists that. So poor harvests, faulty investments, wretched returns. This would be an example of the, the curse, God's resistance of them. And if you, if you consider the discontent of the people and how they felt they were in a situation that was not fair, that God wasn't treating them right, much of that discontent, which they blamed on God, was actually their own fault. And boy, do we not see this as human beings, right? So many of the things that we blame on God, that we put at God's feet. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you allowing that? Are things that we brought upon ourselves. God's told us, don't go that direction. Go this way. We've cho- chosen to go our own way. Now the consequences come. We say, God, why have you allowed this? Well, you chose that path. Don't blame God. In essence, God is offering for the removal of that curse. Return unto me and I'll return unto you. I'll, I'll, I'll start blessing, but you, you've got to initiate that. So there's a curse. A controversy, a curse, which is followed in verse 10 by a command. The command in verse 10 is actually a twofold command. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith saith the Lord of hosts. So there's two commands. One is, I want you to bring. And of course, he's referring to the, uh, uh, um, this, the, the, the act of, of robbing God and the tithes and the offerings. But with this command, it's always good with an action word. Just kind of break it down. All right, who? Who is supposed to, to bring? Well, we're talking about the obedient Jews or the repentant Jews, God's people who want to to please and honor God. What were they supposed to bring? They were supposed to bring all the tithes. All right? And I think that may refer to not just, you know, the one, but all four that they were commanded throughout the Old Testament. Bring all the tithes. Either that or just means, you know, don't scrimp on anything. All right? Uh, Either or. I'm not sure exactly which one, but could be both. Bring all the tithes. Where were they supposed to bring it? Bring it into the storehouse. Well, what is the storehouse? It was a specific room, a specific place in the temple where provisions were to be stored. When were they supposed to bring it? Well, they were to bring it whenever they appeared before God, and there were specific times in which they were supposed to to appear before God. Why were they supposed to bring? Well, simply the reason why is that there would be meat or provision, or uh, there would be uh, uh, of some... um, some provisions, the only word I can think of right now, but there would be enough to supply the needs of God's house and the people who served in God's house. How are they supposed to give? Well, we already saw it at the end of verse 10. We'll talk about this a little bit in a moment, but they were supposed to give then expectantly. Prove me, all right? Test me. 
Here's what I'm going to give. We're supposed to give in that way. Okay, we see a bit of a parallel. For us today, who is supposed to bring? Well, here's a touchy question. Here's one that lots of ink has been spilled. Lots of sermons have been preached. Lots of books have been written. Is the tithe a New Testament principle? There's a lot of controversy out there. Um, Of course, maybe we're touching on a live rail that is people's money. And so all sorts of reasons why this is not a New Testament principle. But very, very briefly, let me give you some things real quickly why I believe it is a New Testament principle. And I wish we had time. Our time is fast running out. But very quickly, let me show you some of these things. First of all, we understand that the tithe was commenced by Abraham. This is before the giving of the law. Those four tithes we talked about, specifically, God gave details to his... This is, this is actually 500 years before the law. And this is when Abraham returns from victory in battle. He meets Melchizedek and he tithes of all the increase that God had brought into his life. And really, and I know we're kind of just boiling things down real fast, but when you think about it, what's being presented in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 is the fact that Melchizedek is a, is a type of, of Christ, if he's not Christ himself. He's a type of God, and Abraham is a type or a representation of God's people. Both God's people, like in Malachi, by blood, Jews, but also God's people by faith. We are by faith children of Abraham, those of us who are believers. So we're included in this, just like his flesh and blood was included, and that was the point of Hebrews chapter 7. The fact that the Levites tithed in Abraham. So it was commenced by Abraham before the law. It was continued by Jacob before the law in Genesis 28. That's when he promised, God, if you bring me back, I will tithe of all that you you provide to me. It was then, of course, as we've seen, confirmed by Moses in the law in Leviticus 27. It's also then commended by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. When he talked about the Pharisees, and we're kind of familiar with that verse, he talks about how the, the, the Pharisees had tithed of their mint and their anise and their cumin, their, their, their spices, that which they were able probably to, to grow and to have, those spices, they would tithe of those things. And Jesus said something that was very important. He says, these things ought you, had, ought you to have done. Now, he mentions the matters that they had overlooked, the weightier matters of the law. But he mentions the tithe and he specifically says, yes, you should have done that, but you also should do this over here. You need to do both. He's not not taking one over the other. He's saying both are necessary, both are required. It's also the tithe is commissioned by God in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 14 where Paul explains that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Should be provided by the giving of God's people, of those that have been reached with the gospel. And then, of course, it was conformed to by Paul. We're going to look at this verse in just a second. 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and verse 2, where we're told that we're to lay up in store as God has prospered us. Okay, so is tithing a New Testament principle? I do believe that it is. So back to our chart. Who is supposed to tithe? I think obedient Christians are supposed to tithe, to bring the tithes. We are, we are to bring those tithes. Proverbs 3, verse 9 mentions honoring the Lord with our substance and the first fruits of our increase. Where are we to bring our tithes? We are to bring it to the church. And just real quickly, uh, hold your place here. Go to 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. I want you to see this verse. I believe Paul, in how this verse is worded, makes clear connection back, I think, even to Malachi and what's said there. Notice it in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. He says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. So a proportional gift based upon God's blessing, that there be no gatherings when I come. So when are we supposed to give? Well, the indication there is when the, when the church met the first day of the week. When you appeared in the assembly, that was when you were supposed to give. Why were you supposed to give? Well, you're there in 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And here Paul makes a, a, um, 
a clear parallel. And I think this may be more of the deciding principle of, of or a deciding vote in the, in the category of tithing as a New Testament principle because Paul lays this clear parallel in 1 Corinthians 9. Look there in verse 13. It says, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? Okay, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the tithes that we just mentioned. That those specifically who served in the temple, they were tithed to not only as Levites, but then the Levites then tithed to those who specifically served in the temple. And Paul is saying that that there was a purpose, there was a reason for that. And then verse 14, so that's the Old Testament. Now he's going to parallel it with the New Testament. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So just as the tithe provided for the needs of God's house in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple, the Levites and the priests and God's servants, just as that was God's plan in the Old Testament, God's plan in the New Testament is to provide for His house. The New Testament tells us the pillar and ground of the truth, God's house is the assembly, the church, and to provide for His servants those that have given themselves to serve the Lord. And then how should we give? I know we're going pretty fast, but you're in 1 Corinthians. Just skip one book to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verses 6 and 7. God told His people to give expectantly. How are we supposed to give? Well, the same way. But God also mentions cheerfully 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. But this I say, He that soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he has purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. We realize today that we are not under the Old Testament law. The law specifically given to the nation of Israel. The law dictating the worship in Israel. We, we understand we're not under the law anymore, but what God is saying, and, and I think very clearly in this verse, is that God wants us to give, not of necessity. Not because God is over us, you better give me what's mine. But we ought to give cheerfully. Right. We ought to give willingly, not of necessity or grudgingly. Because God loves and He wants, He desires a Cheerful giver. And this is the case both in tithes, the tenth, and also in offerings. The tithe, a matter of obedience to God, and offering, a matter of willingness before God. So he says, bring. The first command is bring. This is how I want you to return. This is how I want you to repent. Go back to bringing me the tithes. Bring the tithes to the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. Bring. That's the first command. What's the second command? Prove. Prove. The word prove means try me. Examine me. Scrutinize me. Put me on trial. What condescension that God would stoop to allowing Himself to be put on trial and to be tested by His creation. I'll tell you tonight, God does not need to prove Himself to any of us. He doesn't owe that to us. But he says, go ahead. Try me. Prove me. Examine me. I'm going to put again, I'll put my name on it, saith the Lord of hosts, putting my character on it. Prove me. Prove that I am really the source of the blessing that I'm going to give. And he mentions that in, uh, oh, I'm not there, but I should turn back there. He mentions that specifically at the end of verse 10. Um, where he says, see if I prove me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven. Do you know the only other time where the windows of heaven are used in the Old Testament? Anybody remember the time? It was Noah in the flood. God opened the windows of heaven to pour out judgment upon this earth. And I think we can all understand that was a lot of water. A lot came out of those windows, didn't they? But here, instead of judgment, God is saying blessing. See if I'm going to open the windows of heaven, and then he describes the supply of blessing 
that's going to be poured out, not sprinkled, not pinched, not sort of dropped along the way. In fact, the idea of pour means to empty out. It's like, it's like having that bucket that you pour it out and then you turn it over and spin it a little bit just to kind of get every drop. You, you, you're getting rid of all of it. You're emptying it out. And God's saying, what I want to do for you is I want to empty out my blessing through the windows of heaven if you would only choose to give in the way that I'm telling you to give. And as a result, there's not room enough to receive it. You can't even take it all in. And I believe one of the, re- one of the uh, uh, references in that specific context, we won't even be able to quantify the blessings that God gives. And I think in my own experience, if I had to try to, to record in like an accountant kind of scenario... These are all the ways in which God has blessed me. Could, could I really do it? <laughs> no. Could you really do it? So many of the things that are blessings, I mean, we just kind of get used to. We're accustomed to. It's just normal. But God says, I'm going to give you, and there's not, you can't even receive it all. You, you can't even quantify it all. But it starts with being willing to give to God's house, to God's people, to God's work. That's where it begins. That's the command. Bring the tithes. Prove me. And then the last thing we see, we saw controversy and a curse and a command. But verse 11 and 12, there is the promise of a consecration. God says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field saith the Lord of hosts, and all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 11 talks a little bit about, I believe, what was actually going on in that curse. The fruits of the ground were being destroyed. The vine was dropping the fruit before it was time. They were frustrated. And pursuing after more resources for themselves and not being generous with God. God says, if you bring the tithes in the storehouse, if you choose to return to me in, the, in, in, in that way, I'm going to rebuke the devourer. Or we could put it this way, I'm going to consecrate you, I'm going to set you apart from the devourer. The devourer is here, he has free access to you, I'm going to take you, bring you over here, and you're protected from it. He uses the word rebuke, I'm going to rebuke that devourer. And of course, we have to ask the question, who or what is the devourer? Well, you can think about it in two different ways. One of the devourers would be the purveyor of sin himself, the one seeking to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is the devil. This is Satan. The one who's after you. Think about this. The one who's after your kids. The one who's after your family. What, what would you give? Sacrifice in order to protect your family? I know some of us men, you know, we would I'd protect my family. I've got my, I've got my weapon, you know, it's in that safe. And as soon as that door comes, it's out. And you better look out. You're coming in my house, all right, because I'm going to protect my kingdom. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all good, all right? You ought to protect in that way. But there's a devourer that's coming for your family in your house. And I wonder if the fact that he has, seems to have free reign is because you've been stingy with God. And you've been refusing to give that, those precious resources that you have, give those to God. So there's a promise of being set apart from, I believe, the purveyor of sin. But also, I think you could also see this in this way, being set apart from the curse of sin. You know what the curse of sin is? It's all those products from China that they sell in Walmart. You know? And it's just this tiny bit of plastic and one use. And it's done. Okay, that's not completely the curse of sin. Because even the most, even the most um, high quality craftsmanship, the most expensive there is, I'll just leave it out in the sun for a while. Let your kids leave it out in the rain. 
It's the curse of sin. Everything is degrading. It's falling apart. It doesn't last. What did God do to the devourer of the the Israelites' shoes in the land as they were wandering in the wilderness? It talks about how He didn't even allow their feet to swell. I don't know if that means He just sort of stunted their the growth of their foot, or he, magic, or, you know, he miraculously made the shoe grow. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out one day. But the devourer was rebuked. God could do a whole lot more with your 90% than you could do with your 100%. A whole lot more. A whole lot more. And those of you who you know, own a lot of resources, you own a house, you know, boy, all it takes is, there goes the water heater. There goes, you know, the, the, uh, the heating and air conditioning and thousands of dollars, you know, whoop, just like that. God says, I, prove me. Prove me. I will promise from God, I'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes. And he won't destroy those things. He won't cause frustration when it comes to heaping wealth to yourself. He won't. He won't bring that frustration. He'll kind of just punt it down the road. And you'll have no idea how God is preserving you and caring for your needs. So there's a promise of consecration being set apart from the devourer, but also a promise of consecration being set apart from the nations. The idea here in verse 11, or sorry, verse 12, that everyone else is looking on, almost in bewilderment, scratching their heads. How... How are they blessed in such a way? How are all of their needs taken care of? I, I, don't, I don't see how this is happening. They're not, you know, in these sort of careers where the money's just sort of flowing in. They don't seem to, to, to have so much as far as resources, but yet their needs are cared for. The nations are looking on in bewilderment and they're saying the only explanation for what we are seeing is the blessing of God. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. And I'll point out, they're the blessed nation, the blessing of God. What is the opposite of the blessing of God? It is the curse that he mentioned previously. So instead of God resisting you, God is blessing you. You'll be a blessed nation, and you'll also be a delightsome land. Interesting word, delightsome. One of the definitions of that word simply said this, that in which one takes delight. And I thought, who is that one? That which the one takes delight. As a child of God, I mean, and it's not just a selfish rationale to this, but I really want to be someone who the one takes delight in. Now, I, I like the blessings that come from it. I won't lie to that, but I mean, I want to please Him. I want to be called a delightsome servant, living in a delightsome land as I walk in God's will. But it comes by being obedient in the tithes, being willing in the offerings, being generous with those things that I have. So tonight, can I ask you, are you robbing God? And a lot of emphasis being given to that, you know, you're like with the weapon sticking up God and, you know, robbing from him. But if you think about robbing as just withholding that which is due to him, that makes it a little bit more personal, doesn't it? Am I withholding that which is due to God? And that doesn't just involve what we initially think of as money. I can withhold my time. I can withhold myself. I can withhold my talents. I can withhold my abilities. And in the same way all of my earthly resources, the money that I have is really His and a result of His blessing, how much more the abilities, the talents, the life that I have, the time that I have, that's also given to me by God and also belongs to Him. And I should have a desire to give a portion of that back. 
because of all that He has done for me. Remember that God's blessings, and can we take a pause real quick and include, make sure we remember that one of those blessings is a relationship and fellowship with God? God's blessings, including fellowship with Him, only follows wholehearted obedience. Is fellowship with God that important to you? Is it that important to me? Then whatever God may even ask or suggest is not that big of a deal to me because the real prize that I'm after is not the extra zero on my bank account. It's not a comfy retirement. It's not another house. It's not a, it's not a successful business. But it is fellowship with God. That's the real prize. Amen. And when we're after that, whatever God asks could never be too much. Amen. Let's examine our hearts tonight. Make sure that we are not withholding that which is due to God. 